I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, the Trade Guys explain the new U.S.-Brazil mini-deal. What's in it? Why does it matter? And what are its implications? And we'll break down China's new export control law, which could limit U.S. access to crucial rare earth minerals. Plus, we'll check in on U.S. farmers who seem to be sticking with Trump despite bearing the burden of his trade policy. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. All right, we're back with a brand new episode of The Trade Guys. I'm uh, Jack Capwell again, filling in for Andrew Schwartz this week. And I thought we'd start off with the big trade news of the week, although it's been kind of a slow week, and that is that the U.S. and Brazil have reached a limited trade deal on just a couple of issues, trade facilitation, regulatory practices, and cracking down on corruption. And this agreement follows a pattern of I guess we could call them mini deals that the administration has negotiated, one with Japan and another with China. And there are a lot of questions about, you know, the content of these agreements, whether or not they're meaningful, but also the kind of procedural aspect of these agreements, because they don't need to be presented to Congress. It's just something the executive can sign off on. So guys, let me ask you two questions. How meaningful is the agreement in terms of trade between the U.S. and Brazil And then what do you think about the process piece of this? I mean, is that something folks should be worried about uh, or is it kind of just no big deal? Well, you know, if that's the biggest thing that happened this week, (laughs) you're right. It's been a pretty slow week. I mean, it's not bad. These are good things. Trade facilitation uh, is a good thing. Anti-corruption is a good thing. The business community lobbied hard for including a, a digital trade chapter, which is not there, and an IP chapter, which is not there, uh, both of which should be there. So it's not much, but it's, uh, I think, net, it's a good thing. You're exactly right, Jack, that the Congress is not happy because, for two reasons. One, because they're being bypassed, and two, because it's Brazil. I think Lighthizer took some of the uh, sting out of that particular criticism yesterday when he was, you know, appearing before the, the U.S. chamber and said that a full FTA wasn't in the cards and then blamed it on House Democrats opposing it which is probably a fair blame because they oppose it. Senate Democrats have opposed it too. And I think he's right. I, I don't think it would get much traction. He didn't really defend the question of not presenting this agreement to the Congress. It does give me a chance to mention that a project that we're working on is to develop recommended options for TPA renewal when it expires next June. And one of the issues that we spend more time debating than any other issue is what agreements need to go to Congress and what can be avoided, because there's a lot of unhappiness with the ones you mentioned, because Congress didn't get to review any of them. Scott? Well, this is interesting, because first, any improvement with Brazil is a help. If you're doing business with Brazil as an American business or trader, you'll take anything, because Brazil has been not as integrated into the world economy as many markets, including Mexico. Mexico actually is a good example of another large Latin American country that has mainly integrated with the world economy, well, starting with NAFTA, but but Mexico itself has gone at great lengths to negotiate free trade agreements with the Southern Cone and most of the South American markets. 
and have, has become a leading supplier of automobiles and manufactured goods to the countries south of them. Brazil has followed a different course all along during sort of what we call globalization 2.0, when trading goods really expanded from the mid-90s or early 90s to 2007. And Brazil has always wanted to have it its own way. Blaming the House Democrats may be entertaining if you're a Republican officeholder, but frankly, as far back as the Free Trade Area of the Americas, which was launched with great fanfare in 1994, Brazil was actually never willing to make serious commitments. And one of the reasons that the Free Trade Area of the Americas ran out of gas was because it became clear by the time that negotiations really started that Brazil just wasn't interested. So there are many, many protectionist measures. It's a hard place to get needed components and materials into the market. It's still a very high-performing, globally competitive agricultural exporter. So Brazil does trade, and they, they trade some important things, and their ag exports are globally competitive. Not really a criticism. It's just the way they approach trade policy. If you're a trader, you'll take any help. So that's, that's the first point I make. Second, I think that this is consistent with President Trump's kind of half-a-loaf strategy. He's willing to take these small deals. This may actually be what foreign leaders want and need in terms of their relationship with the U.S. If you look at it from their standpoint, whether you do a comprehensive FTA or a mini deal like this, there's a signing ceremony with a photo op. And that may be all that's really beneficial in the near term to the foreign leaders. And so there's an economy of effort in here in the politics of these small deals that I don't think we should underestimate because doing a big deal is really hard, takes a lot of compromises, and probably would never happen. So why not just take the photo op? That's a good point. It's I don't think the the issue here is lack of U.S. ambition. I think right. it's lack of Brazilian ambition, and we're just bowing to the inevitable. I mean, the photo op point is a great one. You see it with the U.S.-EU deal on lobsters, which took, I think, some heat off the Europeans and resulted in the president being able to talk about it for a couple of weeks on the campaign trail. But let me just ask, you know, it seems like you guys are pretty pessimistic about bigger deal between the U.S. and Brazil, more comprehensive agreement. And I think that also follows the pattern of we'll do a small deal with Japan and then get to the rest of it later. That hasn't materialized. Same thing with China. You know, the administration says that the smaller deals build momentum or create building blocks or foundation for the bigger deal. Do you think that's right? You know, don't the smaller deals take certain issues off the table that you can trade away to get the bigger concessions in the future? Doesn't it seem like, you know, these countries can just string the administration along and buy a couple months or a year of goodwill and just delay? Well, look, so far, the, the bigger deals haven't materialized in these situations. So it's hard to take that at face, at face value. Certainly, every trade relationship between two sovereigns has easy issues and hard issues. And these small deals just do easy issues. Okay, so the hard issues remain. They don't become less difficult. There are fewer trade-offs, which is a good point, Jack. But I think the more important part is that we we're probably never going to agree with, uh, you know, look at Brazil, for instance, and one of the hard issues like ethanol. We were likely never, ever to come to an agreement with Brazil on ethanol or sugar. OK, and so Brazil looks at this and say, why bother? Why, why am I going to open up to market access partners that I don't really need, like the United States industries, if I'm not going to get 
the ag concessions that I really need to balance that out for my politics. So it's one of these things. It may just be a, a reflection of the place we are and the reality of the trading relationships that we have. It's an interesting debate because it, there's a certain logic of saying, you know, let's start small, build on the foundations and enlarge. The reality is that we haven't generally been able to do that. And I think uh, one of the reasons is, is sort of the counter argument, which is if you pick all the low hanging fruit in the beginning, it makes what's left all the more difficult to deal with. And that the logic behind large multilateral agreements was sort of the single undertaking. You know, you wrap everything together and that forces countries to make some difficult concessions, but it also gives them some important gains because other countries are making difficult concessions too. Now, it's an equally fair point that, uh, you know, we haven't been able to do one of those for 25 years. So you can argue that maybe the day of countries being willing to do a single undertaking and make big concessions is over. But that takes us back to let's pick the low hanging fruit. You know, but the result of that is you do all these phase one deals and you never get to phase two. Uh, and that's one of the things that this administration has to explain. And they just had to. You know, they were de defending the Japan agreement before the WTO, which is doing a review. And other countries pointed out, well, this doesn't cover substantially all trade like it's supposed to. And the Japanese response was more or less, well, we're working on that, you know, and, and when we when we get to phase two, uh, we'll do better. But, you know, if you never get there at some point, that's kind of a hollow argument. Well, let's move to the other side of the Pacific and talk about China. Favorite topic on the trade, guys. Their top legislature on Saturday passed a new export control law, which allows the government to ban exports of strategic materials and advanced technologies to specific companies. Uh, it's the equivalent of the our U.S. Department of Commerce entity list, uh, which we've talked about before. I see this as another step in tit-for-tat escalation between the U.S. and China. Do you guys think that U.S. companies should be concerned about China's new export control law? Do you think that this is kind of just making into legislation what is already kind of known or accepted practice in China? What do you guys make of it? Well, look, here's the dirty little secret of the rule of law, which most of the outside world has been pushing China to do for the past 40 years. It's a good thing. The rule of law is a good thing. Predictability and transparency are good things, particularly when it comes to international trade, uh, because the alternative is, I guess you'd call it Calvin Ball, where the rules change every time you play the game. You don't want that. But at the same time, even in this period of reform, China had the habit, because they don't have something like legislative history, they don't have the evolution of these tools, the way that the tools evolved in let's just call them industrial democracies. Take a separate example, antitrust laws. Antitrust laws are somewhat different in the United States and, and Europe, but both have antitrust laws. Both are pretty well established, but they evolved over time, all right? They didn't just come out of the blue. And uh, there, were, there were some problems that needed to be solved, and the antitrust law was the solution to the problems. When China has adopted major sort of uh, regulatory regimes, like antitrust laws, they tend to just shop around, pick one that looks like it's adaptable. If I remember right, the antitrust laws in China were modeled after the German antitrust laws. That's a good thing because you can do that very quickly and you just take the text and copy and paste. The problem is there weren't a lot of retired or deceased 
German lawmakers to talk to about how these laws came about in the first place and what some of the debates were and how they arrived at this as the balance. You're just taking the final product without the process. And that has limitations, right? Most of the limitations in China, no legislative history, no way of really interpreting the statute, but putting it in the hands of Chinese judges, which are basically all party functionaries. You always get not really satisfactory results. I'm expecting the same here, but Bill is the trade guy export control expert. So let's, he'll have thought about this. It's hard to get too excited about it for a couple of reasons. First, they've done pretty much exactly what we've done. So it's a little bit hard to complain that somehow this is unfair. Second, as somebody who used to be in the export control business, we spent years trying to get them to do this. We spent years complaining that their export control uh, procedures were not tough enough. Of course, at that time, we were talking about what they were exporting to Iran and what they were exporting to North Korea and what they were exporting to countries that were engaged in acts of terrorism or, or other things that we didn't like. And we were trying to get them to tighten up exports of missile technology and uh, you know chemical weapons ingredients and stuff like that. So the Chinese response, if we complain, has to be A, you know, we're doing what you wanted and we're doing what you did. What are you complaining about? Now, that said, I think the reason they're doing it now has a lot to do with what we're doing, focused on them. And if this ends up being focused on us, then it may cause some uh, American companies some inconvenience, although I think that the amount of stuff that they would be controlling because they consider it critical, I'm not sure how much of that stuff we would be buying anyway for our own security reasons. Where it will probably come into play, uh, it will be on rare earths, where if they use it to control rare earth exports, that will be a problem because right now they continue to dominate global production of that. They've lost a case on this before at the WTO. They tried to restrict rare earth exports in the past. They lost because the restriction was regarded as discriminatory. They said they were doing it to conserve natural resources which is one of the exceptions that the WTO allows. But then it turned out they were actually increasing domestic production and domestic use of the same stuff. So it was hard for them to argue that we're concerned about exhausting the resource if we're actually boosting our own consumption of it uh, at the same time we're denying it to others. They could lose again if they choose to enforce it on rare earths, which is a vulnerability for us. I wouldn't be surprised if they did that. But uh, they have to do it in a way that's WTO consistent or they're going to have the same problem they had before. I do think this plays into the hands of the American China hawks because it will become prima facie evidence of China as unreliable supplier, an unreliable business partner, basically. So much of the same debate that was had over personal protective equipment uh, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic or pharmaceutical precursors in the middle of the pandemic may be had again under things like rare earths. And it may incentivize the people uh, who are arguing for reshoring on a lot of things. Uh, rare earths is an interesting example because as a share of the earth's crust, they're really not that rare. And the United States has a fairly large portion of the Earth's crust, <laughs> we consider our territory, they're messy and difficult to process. They're messy to mine, difficult to process, a lot of environmental difficulties with complying with U.S. environmental law and regulation to run the, particularly the processing operations. So that's one of the reasons the production is not here and it's there. However, since this WTO case, there is new both mining 
and processing in the United States, whether there'll be more. It's the flip side of the reshoring argument. If you want to reshore, you've got to be, you got to take the whole package. Let's stick with the Earth's crust. Perhaps we won't go as deep into it as what's necessary. <laughs> we're going to dig deep. Is that Where what you're saying? <laughs> Well, I want to talk about. I want to talk. We're just about talking farmers. about the topsoil now. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. The farmers always fascinate me. Which farmers? American farmers or foreign farmers? American farmers. Oh, that's not to say that foreign farmers aren't interesting in their own right. But there are a couple of related stories that came out this week. One is, you know, first there's some new polling which shows that farmers surveyed by uh, Farm Futures, which is an ag publication. 75% of them surveyed over the summer said they plan to vote for the president, which is a higher share than those surveyed in the 2016 election, which is, to me, pretty interesting. And then the second farm-related story that came out this week is that the subsidy levels, aid programs for farmers, has hit an all-time high. And so maybe you guys see those two stories as connected. Maybe there's stuff about Biden that the farmers really just hate or the farmers are still banking on a big phase two U.S.-China agreement and more China agricultural purchases, whatever it may be. I'm kind of curious about this from a political perspective, but also from a policy perspective. Like, What are the, the long and short term consequences of sustained high levels of aid for farmers? So what do you guys make of this? Because it's been a really tumultuous four years for farmers in large part because of trade policy. At the moment, it's hard to figure out who in the American economy is not being subsidized, okay? There's massive levels of fiscal support. Just look at the budget deficits that, that we're running right at the moment, whether related to the pandemic or not. But there's a lot of spending that is related to the pandemic. But look, you have the Fed buying private corporate bonds, junk bonds, basically, to provide liquidity in the system. So a lot of people getting paid right at the moment. That's the first point. Second, I think there are good policy reasons for the, the agriculture support of the Trump administration that go beyond subsidies, particularly in their approach to regulation. They've had a general deregulatory agenda, unlike the Obama-Biden administration, which had a particularly environmental regulation and the practices of the Forest Service Bureau of Land Management, many sort of farm-facing agencies that were quite different in the Biden-Obama administration than they are in the Trump administration. And I think farmers recognize that, and that's part of their calculation beyond spending. Finally, let me say about spending, it helped Harry Truman in 1948. There's an interesting race to compare this to. The governor of New York, Republican Tom Dewey, scientific polling was in its infancy, but it was reasonably well enough developed in New York that Governor Dewey had some confidence in it. And the polls showed him with a big lead. And so he kind of sat on his lead most of the campaign. Harry Truman, the incumbent who was behind in the race most of the summer, spent his effort in the farm states and pushed through Congress to pass a big farm support package. And it was previously Republican areas of farm states who voted for President Truman that wound up uh, giving you that very famous newspaper headline that everybody holds up and gave Truman the win in 48. So this has some parallels, but that's probably not the whole story here. I, mean, I think Scott's right that if they're voting for Trump, it's for multiple reasons. But, you know, a big one is he's paying them all off. It's depressing from a policy point of view because the reason he's paying them all off is his own making. Their market share crashed because of the tariffs. He put the tariffs right. on the Chinese. The Chinese retaliated. Uh, you know, our soybean sales and, uh, and some other items disappeared. 
And so to clean up that mess, uh, he's been giving them money. So as a taxpayer, I'm offended by that, you know, <laughs> and the farmers claim to be offended by it and say they would prefer the sales to the subsidies. And I, I think they're probably right. But I, I do remember occasional conversations with my late father-in-law, who was a small cattle farmer, who regularly complained about uh, the federal agriculture policies and complained about the subsidies, but he didn't send the check back when it came. And I think a lot of them are in that category. They've been bought off. We should have a longer conversation sometime about, you know, where agriculture is going. I, I think part of the problem is that it's been increasingly centralizing, if that's the right word, around very, very large farms. And farm bankruptcies are up. There's a lot of individual farmers, family farmers who are, you know, who are losing their farms because of the economic situation and because of Trump's tariff policies. Yet food production seems to be fine. I mean, there's a, a lot of changes going on in the whole agriculture community that probably could deserve some study, uh, and one of which is going to be inevitably the, the drive toward more sustainable production. I mean, you're right. Farmers don't like regulation. They don't like to be told what to do. Nobody does. But I think nobody has a better appreciation for the environment than farmers do. And they certainly have an appreciation for climate change because they're the victims. You know, look at the hurricanes. Look at the flooding. I mean, the people that are on the the front line of those disasters tend to be farmers. And I think that if we have an administration that's going to focus on how can we get our farmers to engage in practices that are going to mitigate those effects, uh, I think there's going to be some receptivity. We're not there now, though. What strikes me is that there probably wouldn't be too large of a shift in terms of policy that affects the farm community between, at least speaking to, to trade and subsidies, not necessarily the environmental regulation aspect of it, there wouldn't be too large of a difference between a Biden and a Trump administration, right? Do you guys agree with that? It seems like, you know, Biden is all for the stimulus. He's all for helping folks who have been impacted, it seems. And it doesn't look like he's going to do much in terms of creating new market access opportunities for farmers. Do you guys see much of a difference on the trade front? Well, it's a little hard to say at the moment because the Biden campaign hasn't said much about this. And uh, Vice President Biden himself has not said much about it. So I'm speculating here. We've talked before that uh, the China tariffs are likely to stay in place in a Biden administration. And given that that seems to be the big disruptor, at least in uh, sales volume for American farmers, the subsidies seem like they're the counterpoint to the tariffs. And so if you keep the tariffs, there's going to be pressure to keep the subsidies. So we'll be interested to see how that plays out. I don't think it's going to play out that way. What I've said about the tariffs is I, I don't think they go away immediately, but I think they end up going away because I think Biden is acutely aware of the damage they've caused the farmers. Uh, and I think he'd like to find a way to get rid of them. He's not going to make them go away for free. So there's a negotiation and hopefully he can produce something from the Chinese that will allow him to say, okay, we can get rid of these and we can get at least the market situation back to normal. I, I mean, I think that will be the objective. It, it's going to take a while to get there. At the same time, you know, I have to say, think about it pragmatically. If the polling that, that Jack cited is, is correct and 75% of the farmers are going to vote for Trump, I wouldn't blame Biden if he doesn't pay too much attention to them. Go back to what Scott said, you know, if you're going to hunt where the ducks are, Democratic votes are not necessarily in the farm states. Although they seem to be in Iowa right now. And look, a lot of farm policy and agriculture trade policy winds up being the province of the United States Senate. 
So if you envision a renewal of trade promotion authority around the time it expires, call it summer 2021, you'll have a big impact on agricultural policy from the Senate, regardless of who's president. Great. I think for this week, we'll leave it at that. Obviously, we are done talking about the farmers, but stay tuned for next week. We'll have a brand new episode of The Trade Guys. And more October surprises between now and and, Yes. uh, Think of the potential. All kinds of things could happen. Plus, we may have, or not, a uh, WTO director general by then that we can gossip about. There's a preview of coming attractions from The Trade Guys. Rumors were swirling this week, but nothing definitive. So... Check your inbox or your push notifications or however you get the trade, guys. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.